Today on Golden Girls Sports, we let the kids play. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... The Golden Girls were all moms, and being a mom means being a part of your kids' activities, even when you don't want to. Although the names and numbers change, at least two of the girls had kids that participated in Little League Baseball and referenced it in dialogue on the show. The first time was early in Season 1, in Guess Who's Coming to the Wedding, written by Winifred Hervey and directed by Paul Bogart. Shot as the show's fourth episode, but aired as its second on September 21, 1985. Guess Who's Coming to the Wedding has Dorothy's ex-husband Stan coming to the house to see their daughter Kate marry Dennis the podiatrist. Dorothy manages to restrain herself from murdering Stan all the way through the ceremony, but doesn't let him leave until she unloads a lifetime's worth of anger and frustration on him in a blistering speech she delivers out on the lanai. Part of that speech includes Dorothy's resentment over doing her job as a parent while Stan was off doing whatever or whoever he wanted. Dorothy, look, things happen. Things happened. You're damn right things happened. 38 years happened. 38 years of sharing and, and crying and dreaming and fighting and loving and, and children and diapers and, and school plays and little league and worrying if you'd get through your gallbladder surgery and wondering if I'd get through another Sunday dinner at your mother's house. Towards the end of that speech, check the left side of the screen to see the base of a camera roll briefly into frame before rolling out again. Later in that first season, Blanche is dating a special and very rich new man who has two young kids, which makes taking the relationship to the next level a challenge. In Second Motherhood, written by Christopher Lloyd and directed by Gary Shimokawa, Blanche frets over the idea of having to raise two children while Dorothy and Rose take a break from installing a new toilet to debate the joys and trials of being a full-time mom. I'd marry him. Well, I wouldn't. (laughs) What? Well, no, I don't want to be a mother again either. Oh, I'd love to be a mother again. What, scrubbing socks, picking up toys? Tucking in beds, packing healthy lunches. Phone calls, pajama parties. Dance recitals, baseball games. Cooking. Singing. Worrying. Praying. Girls, I thought we came in here to discuss my problem. Blanche ends up breaking up with Richard because his kids need him more than he needs a girlfriend. Richard was played by incredibly prolific actor Kevin McCarthy, who's probably best known for starring in 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was nominated for an Oscar for playing Biff Lohman in 1951's Death of a Salesman, and the handsome square-jawed actor has a couple of hundred credits to his name, from anthologies to cop shows to dramas to feature films. McCarthy didn't do a ton of comedies, But he did star with B. Arthur in Amanda's, the show she did between Maud and the Golden Girls that was an attempt to make an American version of the British classic Faulty Towers. McCarthy played the brother-in-law to Arthur's eponymous character, who was always trying to woo her for his own. On stage, McCarthy played President Harry Truman in the one-man show Give Him Hell Harry for over two decades. Kevin McCarthy died of pneumonia in 2010 and worked right up to, and even after his death, In 2012, his final film, the sci-fi musical comedy The Ghastly Love of Johnny X, 
was released with him playing the role of the Grand Inquisitor. Second Motherhood was the only Golden Girls episode directed by Gary Shimokawa, but he was no stranger to the show, having acted as an associate director from 1985 to 1987. He served in that role in other shows too, like All in the Family, Archie Bunker's Place, and Night Court, but he was also an experienced director, helming episodes of those shows as well as Fish, Alf, 9 to 5, Titus, Good Morning, Miss Bliss, and that show's version 2.0, Saved by the Bell. The plumber who delivers the Dolan standard low boy toilet to the girls was played by venerable character actor Alan Blumenfeld, who also played pizza party clown Mr. Haha in season two's A Piece of Cake. Little League Baseball can trace its history back to 1938 in a game of catch played between Pennsylvania man Carl Stotts and his two nephews. Stotts felt teen boys should have a way to play organized baseball and not random games in whatever empty lot they can find. After rounding up kids and experimenting with equipment, Stotts enlisted the help of local sponsors to help pay for the cost of the kids' gear. The first three sponsors were Lycoming Dairy, Lundy Lumber, and Jumbo Pretzel. And on June 6, 1939, Lundy defeated Lycoming in the first ever Little League baseball game. It didn't take long for the idea to take root. And in less than 10 years, the league had ballooned to 12 teams and held its first championship tournament, which was won by the Maynard Midgets. But what really launched Little League Baseball into high gear was a story in the Saturday Evening Post. Read by 4 million subscribers at the time, the article and pictures caused Stotts to field an avalanche of requests the next year from communities looking to start their own leagues. The number of leagues doubled for the next few years and went international in 1950 with teams comprised of kids of American workers at the Panama Canal. The organization first barred girls from playing, but in 1974, two state judges said Little League could do no such thing, and the doors were open for girls too. The maximum age to play in Little League is still 13 years old, but every few years a scandal breaks out with someone older than that continuing to play, probably because they're dominant. The name Danny Almonte might ring a bell, or maybe Chicago's Jackie Robinson Little League, both of whom were embroiled in recruiting scandals in recent years. Today, with over 20,000 teams in 80 countries and a month-long championship tournament and World Series of its own that's on ESPN every year, Little League Baseball has grown way beyond a game of catch between an uncle and his two nephews. Little League Baseball also came up on All Bets Are Off. The season 5 episode we've cited repeatedly because it's both very good and packed to the gills with sports jokes. Writer Eugene B. Stein finds the perfect, tragic, and funny way to illustrate just how deep Dorothy's gambling addiction went. Look, Ma, I admit that once I did have a small gambling problem. A small problem? You bet against your own son's Little League team. <laughs> Ma, I had to. I knew that their star pitcher had after-school detention. You were his teacher. You gave him detention. <laughs> Even the Little League version of Pete Rose knows one team you definitely shouldn't have put money on. Baseball was a huge part of Charles Schultz's Peanuts comic strip for all five decades of its run, so much so that there's a page about it at BaseballReference.com, and it has been celebrated in an exhibit at the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was also a joke on the Golden Girls in Season 5's Cheaters, written by Tom Whedon. While Dorothy is about to get a call out of the blue from an old and still-married boyfriend named Glenn, this time played by Bronx-born singer, actor, bandit, protective father, detective, 
anthropomorphic candle, and all-around delightful presence Jerry Orbach, Rose discusses a dream that surely means something. Morning. Good morning, honey. I had the strangest dream last night. I was at a baseball game. Charlie Brown was pitching, and Schroeder was behind the plate. And Lucy and Snoopy were in the outfield, and they wouldn't let me play. When I woke up, I was crying. What do you suppose it all means? Peanuts envy? (laughs) The perpetually unnamed team in the comics was hopeless, hapless, dysfunctional, depressing, and just plain awful. They lost games by scores like 123 to nothing and 37 to 5 in a game in which Peppermint Patty hit five home runs and pitched a no-hitter. She quit the team right after that. They were often called winless, but they actually managed to come out on top in about 10 games over the course of Peanuts' 50-year run, usually when pitcher-slash-manager Charlie Brown wasn't playing. The lineup was pretty stable. Lucy in center field, Schroeder at catcher, Linus and Pigpen at second and third, and Snoopy at shortstop. Old blockhead Charlie Brown wasn't much of a pitcher, or a hitter, or a manager, but he did manage to win two games with walk-off home runs off feared hurler and parody of the natural Royanne Hobbs. Creator Charles Schultz was a baseball fan himself, and even worked his beloved San Francisco Giants into a strip or two. Of the 18,000 strips Schultz produced, approximately 10% involved a baseball game. Games were played in a number of the gang's animated TV specials, too, such as It's Arbor Day Charlie Brown, Bon Voyage Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back, and of course, It's Spring Training Charlie Brown. In August of 2000, about five months after Schultz died, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, opened You're in the Hall of Fame Charlie Brown, an exhibit of strips and memorabilia that ran through the rest of that year. Items included a glove, ball, and a pen, all owned by the cartoonist. Cheaters was written by Tom Whedon, who had an accomplished and varied career behind the camera and won an Emmy in 1973 as a writer on The Electric Company. After writing for The Dick Cavett Show in the late 60s and early 70s, Whedon moved on to sitcoms, where he would stay for most of the rest of his career. He wrote 24 episodes of Alice and 27 of It's a Living, where he also served as producer. Whedon was also a writer-producer on Benson and the co-executive producer on The Golden Girls. Tom Whedon passed away in March of 2016. He was the son of screenwriter John Whedon and the father of two more show business success stories, writer-producer Jed Whedon and writer-director Joss Whedon, creator of shows Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly and director of both Marvel's The Avengers and its sequel, Avengers Age of Ultron. For adults who still want the fun of baseball in a semi-organized but still fun way, there's softball. A favorite of municipal parks and office outings everywhere, the game was first played in the late 19th century and was the result of an accident. After seeing a Harvard student hit a boxing glove a Yale student threw at him with a broom handle after a football game, newspaper writer George Hancock kept the game going and gave birth to what he thought would be an all-new indoor training method for baseball players. Rules weren't formalized until 1934, and even today they allow for different variations of ball sizes, positions, and use of mitts or no mitts. The Golden Girls enjoyed a game of softball before the opening scene of Season 4's Yokel Hero. Written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, the episode starts with the girls returning home from the diamond on a sweltering Miami afternoon. 
Oh, why is it they always schedule the charity softball game on the hottest day of the year? I know it. I'm all hot and sweaty. I'm short of breath, and I'm physically exhausted. <laughs> You'd think I had a good time. <laughs> you didn't have fun? Only thing I really enjoyed was stealing second base. When have you not enjoyed sliding under a man in uniform? <laughs> They're eventually visited by three men, the Topple Coffer Triplets, who are there to tell Rose she's a finalist for St. Olaf's Woman of the Year trophy. What none of them know is that the reason she's a finalist is because Blanche and Dorothy totally phonied up her qualifications. The triplets, Ben, Sven, and Len, who look nothing alike but who somehow confuse everyone back in St. Olaf, were played by a trio of character actors. Ben was played by Jim Dugan, who's been on shows like Moonlighting, Night Court, Who's the Boss, and Perfect Strangers, where he played Jimmy the security guard. You may also remember him as Detective Doyle in The Mask, or from his turn as a driver's ed teacher on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Sven was played by Doug Cox, an actor and writer who's been on both dramas and comedies since the late 70s. Most were single episode parts, but Cox did appear on Laverne and Shirley, Quantum Leap, and Mike and Molly, where he played a bingo caller. Cox also wrote four episodes of Pee Wee's Playhouse, two of which were nominated for Emmys, and all four of which were co-written with John Moody, who played the third Topplecopper triplet, Len. Moody is probably best known as Mailman Mike from Pee Wee's Playhouse, and he continued to play the role in Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the Pee Wee Herman show on Broadway. The Harlem Globetrotters have been entertaining kids and adults since the late 20s, and they were referenced on the Golden Girls in Season 6's Witness, the first solo script written by Arrested Development creator Mitchell Hurwitz. There's a lot going on in this one. Rose is dating a man named Carl, who turns out to be notorious criminal The Cheese Man, who's returned to kill Miles, who's escaped from the Witness Protection Program and come down to Miami in his disguise as an Amish man because he misses Rose. Meanwhile, Blanche wants to get into the Daughters of the Old South, but discovers her great-grandmother was a Jewish lady from Buffalo. And also, Sophia has lost her glasses. That last bit is important in the scene in which Blanche faces the truth about her past in front of a fanatical club she's trying to join. Sophia can't see a thing, so when Blanche goes up to the podium, she's in the dark. We now call Blanche Devereaux. Dorothy, I can't see a thing. What's happening now? The Harlem Globetrotters just took the court. In the end, Blanche tells everyone about her heritage and tells the Daughters of the Old South to whistle Dixie. And Sophia gets her glasses back from neighbor Barbara Weston, who visits the house just in time to arrest the cheese man before he can kill everyone. Witness was the first of two Golden Girls episodes to be directed by a woman. Director Zane Busby is also an actress, who appeared on Oh God, Americathon, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, and This is Spinal Tap. But starting in the mid-80s, she began directing and helmed episodes of Silver Spoons, My Two Dads, Charles in Charge, Blossom, and Sister Sister. Busby was asked to direct an episode of The Golden Girls by producer Tony Thomas, and called the job a wonderful creative experience. B. Arthur in particular enjoyed having, quote, a dame at the helm, and wished Busby had done more episodes. Playing the cheese man in Witness was former police officer turned Jackie Gleason stand-in turned Broadway actor, turned sitcom staple, Barney Martin. Although he will forever be known as dad and former raincoat salesman Morty Seinfeld, Martin had an incredibly long career in show business that didn't even start until he had been a New York City cop for 20 years. Most of his career was spent on TV, 
but he originated the role of Mr. Cellophane Amos Hart in Chicago in the mid-70s and starred in movies like Mel Brooks' The Producers and both Arthur films. Barney Martin passed away in March of 2005 of lung cancer. The Harlem Globetrotters were the brainchild of basketball coach and entrepreneur Abe Saperstein, but they weren't founded in New York. Originally a Chicago-based team called the Savoy Big Five, Saperstein wanted to make it clear that his all-black team, which wasn't allowed to play professionally thanks to segregation, was meant to be from a big city and travel the world. So the name evolved from Saperstein's New York Globetrotters to the Harlem New York Globetrotters and the eventually punchier Harlem Globetrotters. Saperstein not only managed the team, but sewed their red, white, and blue uniforms and occasionally suited up on the floor if a replacement was needed. From their earliest days, the Globetrotters made use of fun nicknames. Original team members included Walter Toots Wright, Byron Fat Long, and Al Runt Pullins. The Globetrotters played their first game on January 7, 1927. In the next decade and a half, the Globetrotters played thousands of games in nearly every state in the Union, including Hawaii. NBA teams would book them on double headers, then watch as attendance from Globetrotters games dwarfed those of the professional ones. It wasn't unusual to see the Globetrotters absolutely trounce teams by a few dozen points. When the point spread got to be large enough, the Trotters would start to clown around with the ball, making trick shots and joking around for the audience. After seeing how the crowds ate the antics up, Saperstein began encouraging his players to do them as long as their leads were safe. The Globetrotters won the invite-only World Basketball Championship in 1940, and in 1948 beat the then-champion Minneapolis Lakers of the NBA. When the Trotters beat the Lakers again the next year, the NBA suddenly decided that maybe integration was a good idea. One of the first black players to get professional attention was Globetrotter Nate Sweetwater Clifton, who became the first black player to agree to an NBA contract in 1950 when he signed with the New York Knicks. Unfortunately, while the Globetrotters helped bring important change to the NBA, that change also caused them to compete with the pro leagues for players. But the 50s were also the decade in which the Globetrotters went international, playing in front of 75,000 people in West Germany at the request of the U.S. State Department and in the Soviet Union. By 1958, the team had won nine consecutive World Series of basketball tournaments and was recognized as one of the best hoops teams on the planet. The 50s were also when the team adopted jazz standard Sweet Georgia Brown by Ben Burney and Masio Pinkard as their official song. After Saperstein's death in 1966, the Harlem Globetrotters finally played in Harlem for the first time. And then in the 1970s, their popularity reached perhaps its greatest height not only thanks to numerous appearances on ABC's Wild World of Sports, but also several TV shows based on and starring them. The original Harlem Globetrotters animated series on CBS gave way to the Harlem Globetrotters Popcorn Machine Variety Program in 1974. And in 1979, the Super Globetrotters cartoon premiered on CBS in which players like Sweet Lou Dunbar and Curly Neal were given superpowers with which to stop evildoers. Dunbar and Neal, along with Meadowlark Lemon, Marcus Haynes, and Nate Branch, were celebrities whose profiles extended far beyond just the basketball court. Dunbar's giant afro and Neal's bald head were synonymous with the Globetrotters thanks to those cartoons. Haynes' incredible dribbling ability was copied by later NBA superstars like Bob Cousy and Pete Maravich. Michael Jordan cited the North Carolina-born Lemon as an influence on him in his basketball career. In the 50s, Wilt Chamberlain spent a year as a Globetrotter and would return to the team when he could during the early years of his legendary NBA career. 
Lynette Woodard, a member of the 1984 U.S. women's basketball team that won gold at the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, became the first female globetrotter in 1985. Fifteen women in total have suited up for the team in their history. Current globetrotter Ant Atkinson summed up the team's influence not only on basketball but on the world. Quote, My grandparents, parents, aunts, and uncles were raised watching the Globetrotters. So I carry a sense of pride and honor to be part of an organization that not only had an impact on my family, but a great influence on the world as well. End quote. The Harlem Globetrotters were inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2002, and chances are one of their multiple touring teams is coming to an arena near you soon. As a person that lived during their heyday, I wish I had seen them live when I was a kid. I'm glad they're still out there, and clearly they will be for a long time. Maybe one day I'll take my wife and daughter, even though they have never seen a cartoon in which Curly Neal's entire head became a basketball and Lou Dunbar pulled gadgets out of his afro. A key component of all basketball games, fun or otherwise, is halftime. That 15-minute period in which dancer teams dance, pee breaks are had, and kids usually want something to eat. In Season 4's Rites of Spring, a wraparound episode consisting of little vignettes written by Eric Cohen, Sophia takes the girls to her personal hairdresser and explains to Rose why she feels it's the right move. Gee, Ma, I don't know if this was such a good idea. I think you're right, Dorothy. Maybe I should have done my own hair. I've been doing it for years. That's why it looks like something you buy on a stick at halftime. <laughs> Suave Eduardo definitely is an artist. Unfortunately, he only knows how to make one thing. And when Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche all end up with Sophia's hairdo, they leave as less than satisfied customers. Playing Eduardo was Urbane Lloyd Bachner, who also portrayed the duplicitous thespian Patrick Vaughn in season two's The Actor, in which he dates all of the girls and some others during a community theater production. Bachner started on stage and TV in his native Canada before moving to the U.S. and becoming a frequent face on anthology series like Studio One in Hollywood, Folio, and the United States Steel Hour. It was on one of, if not the greatest, anthology series of all time where he delivered perhaps his most memorable performance. In the classic Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man, Bachner's reaction to the episode's gut-wrenching twist is still imitated to this day. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book, To Serve Man, it's, it's a cookbook. <laughs> Bachner parodied himself in 1991's The Naked Gun Two and a Half, yelling about a cookbook in the middle of a Leslie Nielsen-induced riot. He stuck mostly to TV in his long career, appearing on nearly every cop show, detective show, and primetime soap in existence. Columbo, Mannix, Ironside, Police Story, Hawaii Five-O, Vegas, I mean, you name it. He was on three different episodes of Mission Impossible playing three different characters. On the sci-fi front, Bachner appeared on Battlestar Galactica, The Six Million Dollar Man, and the old Amazing Spider-Man live-action show. In the early 80s, he was a regular on Dynasty as Cecil Colby, the chief rival to John Forsyth's Blake Carrington. But he also did feature films in his career, like Satan's School for Girls, Tony Rome, and The Detective, which was adapted from a book by Roderick Thorpe, the original author of Die Hard. 
Lloyd Bachner's son, Hart Bachner, also became a professional actor and might be best known as Sneaky Harry Ellis in the seminal film version of that book. In the 1990s, Lloyd Bachner provided the voice for Gotham City Mayor Hamilton Hill on multiple episodes of two separate Batman animated series. In November of 2005, Lloyd Bachner passed away from cancer at the age of 81. No matter what kind of show he was on, he always epitomized sophisticated, smooth-talking, high-class characters, whether they were cops, criminals, businessmen, or mayors who may have inadvertently created a supervillain or two. Sophia sometimes acts as a mini-supervillain herself, and in Season 7's Where's Charlie, while Blanche is tutoring a minor leaguer in baseball in love, Bull Durham style, Sophia tricks Rose into believing she's channeling Rose's late husband, Charlie, all for a raise in her allowance. But following fake Charlie's advice causes Rose to break up with her boyfriend, Miles. When the jig comes up, Rose is rightfully angry. Rose, we have to talk. Forget it, Sophia. I'm not talking to you. What you did is the worst thing you've ever done to me. Oh, come on. Worse than the time I buried you up to your neck in sand and let the children throw baseballs at you for 25 cents? <laughs> well, I can't hold that against you. That was for charity. <laughs> yeah, right. Charity. Sophia makes up for her prank by convincing Rose to get back together with Miles, and the kids in the neighborhood found someone else to throw baseballs at. For much more on Where's Charlie, check out our Rue McClanahan feature episode back in Season 1. Finally, we have Clinton Avenue Memoirs, a Season 5 episode written by Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble that we've covered a few times. Dorothy takes Sophia back to Brooklyn because her memories seem to be fading. And when they arrive in their old neighborhood, they see a gang of kids enjoying an old city favorite. Isn't it good to be back in the old neighborhood, Dorothy? Watching the kids playing stickball on the corner? Ma, they were beating a man. <laughs> That's sort of why I called the police. <laughs> ah, they were just having a good time. Is stickball a sport? Not really. Is that exchange hilarious? Yes. If you're ever in New York City and want to find out more about the most New York of all games, you can stop by the Stickball Hall of Fame in Harlem on 109th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. Old photos, equipment, trophies, clothes, and films can be seen there, and document the history of the game. But call ahead to find out if it's BYOB. Bring your own broomstick. I was not an athletic kid, and I'm generally not an athletic adult. I learned most of my knowledge about sports from TV, and most importantly, video games. A great way to understand how hockey line changes work was an EA Sports NHL series. The only way I could watch golf today is with a controller in my hands. But as we've seen throughout this series, you don't need to be an expert to enjoy a sport or a game or a player. If there's a connection there, you'll know it. And I think kids understand that connection better than anybody. Being lousy at sports never stopped Charlie Brown from playing them, making that old blockhead a role model for all of us. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we spotlight both auto racing and Rose's longtime boyfriend, whose name, ironically, is Miles. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward 
and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlssportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at goldengirlssp. Thanks for listening.